And well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9 tonight. Luke chapter 9. We're going to go ahead and read the first uh, six verses here of Luke chapter 9. Then he called his, his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Jesus sends out the twelve to minister without him. This is a first for them. Um, And uh, he gives them authority. Now the authority that Jesus had over all things has been vividly demonstrated to the multitudes, uh, to his disciples, and particularly to the twelve. But now he is giving them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Uh, Just two quick notes uh, on that. Uh, We should be reminded here, uh, despite what uh, liberal theologians like to uh, discuss, Luke particularly notes an understanding of the distinction between demonic possession and activity and disease, right? He's a doctor, and yet he, he, and he draws a distinction. Uh, we don't want to be uh, led into that trap that uh, is commonplace today when people try to say, well, you know, they just they didn't understand stuff, and so they attributed all kinds of, uh, of just natural diseases to, to the demonic. Uh, not not the Bible. The, the Bible knows the distinction, and, and Luke shows uh, that he understands uh, there's a distinction here between those two things. So uh, just a reminder there, we've talked about that before. Uh, notice too, and we'll, this will come up later, but notice it says Jesus gave them authority over all demons. And, and I think that's going to have some significance in gleaning some lessons from an event that's described later Uh, in verses 37 to 42. But don't turn ahead now or you'll miss today's lesson. But uh, it will have, uh, I I think it does have some bearing on that, at least in some of the things that we might want to uh, dig out of that. All right, so he's sending them. He's sending them. And why do I say that again? Because, you know, the very word apostolos, the one from which we get the word apostles, means sent ones. And, And so... He is, he is uh, really almost uh, taking the 12 disciples, as Luke refers to them, and he's really turning them into apostles at this point. He's sending them. He's sending them out. He's sending them for two purposes, it says, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, there's significance in that. You may say, well, not a lot. You know, actually, remember back in Luke chapter 4, Way back when we were in Luke chapter 4, remember verse 18 to 19, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum and he, he reads from the, the scroll of Isaiah. You remember that? And he reads about the things that are prophesied about Messiah, about bringing the
the message of the kingdom and about bringing healing to sick people. And remember in chapter 4, verse 21, he astonishes them when he says, uh, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing, right? That Jesus is indeed that prophesied Messiah. And yet he is also pointing them to do the same work. Notice he is connecting his apostles and what he is sending them to do with himself, right? We can't disconnect the apostles from Jesus. They're his apostles. He's the one doing the sending. And we don't want to lose sight of that. There is real continuity here in the scriptures. So by the time we get to Acts uh, chapter 2, and it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine, that's just another way of discussing that they're following in the words of Christ, right? There's uh, The Bible doesn't draw a distinction between the two in terms of authority, uh, in, in terms of origin. It's all from Christ, right? This is, this is Jesus' message. So this is his messianic work, and he is sending them. They're his messengers, right? And so he's being, sending them to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. And there's a sense in which those go hand in hand, don't they? Uh, although they are distinct from one another, um, but the supernatural authority over demons and the power over disease had been given as a witness of the messenger's office and of the messenger, uh, the, the message itself. Right? And we've touched on this a little bit in the past, right? This is God's own testimony of Jesus, the, the authority that Jesus has, the authenticity of Christ is being borne witness by the work that he does, correct? The, the, the power that he demonstrates is a testimony of his authentic uh, message and his, uh, uh, the authenticity of who he is. And, and so the, the idea of a message and the, the powers, the signs, the wonders, they connect together, right? And this pattern now is connecting again the 12 with Jesus, and, 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 and it's, it's declaring them to be authentic messengers of Christ, right? And so we're going to see not only in Luke's gospel, but then in the, the book of Acts, it's a record of the continuing testimony of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's the continuing uh, witness of the Holy Spirit of Jesus through the apostolic work in performing uh, signs and wonders while at the same time they're proclaiming the word of God. Right? These all connect together. They have a purpose and, and a very vital purpose. Right? This was something that, that Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit to them for this purpose. Uh, not, it's not the only purpose. Right? We have the Holy Spirit as well. But he was going to send the helper. Remember John chapter 15, the night of his betrayal. John 15, 26 and 27, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Right? The Holy Spirit's going to testify of Jesus. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So I'm sending you out, Jesus says, 
just like I've sent you in the past, the past being the one we're reading about now, but he's going to send them out again uh, in a very permanent way, but he's not sending them out alone. The Holy Spirit will be given to them to, again, testify of Jesus, to connect them and their message with Jesus and his message. Don't ever try to separate the apostles from Jesus. You know, there's people that do that today. You know, they, they, they want to say, well, you know, I like the words of Jesus over here, but I'm not keen on Paul, right? The, the, new te- the, the Bible does not give us any authority or rationale to do such divisive damage to the word. And he has made it abundantly clear through his work in testifying and so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascends, he says to them again, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the, the signs, the wonders, the powers, right? The things that we just often blanket, we, we use a word called miracles, Right? The Bible, the New Testament likes to use other words, signs, powers, wonders. That's okay, uh, we, as long as we understand what we're talking about. Uh, this is to authenticate, to testify of the authenticity of the apostolic word, just as it was to authenticate Jesus and who he was. And so they're all connected Right? And that's why the Hebrew writer reminds us of this. He says in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. What things have we heard? Well, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and he's referring to the, the Old Testament, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, that's Jesus, right? When did that happen? It began to be spoken when he was here in his earthly ministry and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Who's he speaking to about now? He's talking about primarily the apostles God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The Hebrew writer is just solidifying our understanding of the miraculous being done by the Holy Spirit was done for a very specific purpose, and that was to bear witness of the apostolic message, right? So that's, that's what he's doing. And, and that's why we really, I mean, he's really continuing what the Hebrew writer began in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, when he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Right? But yet we understand that the words of Jesus on this earth, when he was here in his earthly ministry, are not the end of God's revelation to us. 
But at the same time, we come to understand that the apostolic word is indeed the words of Christ. And they are testified by the Holy Spirit and to connect, to unify, and to give us that understanding. And it's also why we understand theologically uh, that, that there, there, there isn't a reason then for the Holy Spirit to be doing those particular kinds of things uh, on a regular basis because we no longer live in the apostolic era wherein the signs and wonders are given as a witness to our words, right? Because the Spirit has completed the canon of Revelation, right? The Word has been authenticated, right? He authenticated it when he spoke it through the apostles. It was received by the early church under that authority of authentication by the, the Holy Spirit, by those who witnessed the, 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 the miracles, right? And then received the word. And then it was written down uh, as directed by the Holy Spirit. And that has been finished. It's a completed thing. So he no longer needs to uh, authenticate my word because he's not speaking new revelation through me. And you already have the written word, and he's already authenticated that. And so we don't anticipate or expect that kind of work to continue on uh, because it was given for a particular reason, as we just read in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm not going to go on a big polemic about the cessation of, of uh, certain of the sign gifts, but you know, just the understanding when we call them the sign gifts that should tell us, uh, wait, the sign gifts, the sign gifts are for a sign. And exactly, they were for a sign to authenticate God's sent messengers, in particular Christ's chosen messengers there, okay? So we're not living there anymore, right? The apostolic era, we do live in the apostolic age of the church, right? In the sense that we're under that same authority authority in terms of the word given by the apostles, but we don't live in the era where the apostles are still living and ministering. That ended before the close of the first century. Nonetheless, okay, so what application does this have for us? Well, there is there are things to be gleaned here uh, for you and I beyond just a, uh, a, a, a an apologetic for the cessation of the sign gifts. Um, the indwelling of the Spirit of God is still at work in his people, and we too are to be a people who preach the kingdom and who do good to others so that glory can be given to our Father in heaven and that uh, through our actions would bear witness uh, to who we are, to the, the fruit of the Spirit being at work in us. We are called to do good works, right? Sometimes we can get so caught up in uh, being in the Word, and, and the, I don't think you could be too caught up in being in the Word, but perhaps you could be if you fail to apply it and recognize that God has called us to do good works. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? 
It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I think sometimes some churches have lost their flavor uh, and people don't get what to do with us. Uh, they don't understand. I, um, I've thought about writing an article that came to me uh, over my time away uh, on vacation as I was reading something and and it, it struck me, the, the thought, a thought struck me, it, it wasn't in the text that I was reading, but uh, what if our, our church didn't exist where it does? And by the way, don't, don't fritz out. I'm not suggesting that we're closing our doors or anything like that. But what if it did? Would it matter to anyone? Now, you're immediately saying, well, of course it would matter to me. I don't have yeah, I get that. I, it would matter to those of us that worship there. But my question is, would it matter to anybody else? Would it matter to our community? Would they care at all? Would they even notice if we were suddenly not there? I was struck by that, that, that thought going through my head. Because we've been, you know, one, one of the great um, condemnation in the Old Testament in particular is when, when it, the, the curse is brought down that you're going to die and nobody's going to mourn you. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a serious condemnation, right? That nobody would care. Or, or worse yet, somebody would actually be excited that you were gone. Um, what a sad thing if a church were to disappear from its community and nobody noticed. And we need to be uh, mindful of that as we think about this call that, that God has given to us. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's to be good works coming from the church in a way that brings glory to God in heaven. Galatians 6, 6 through 10, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows the spirit, will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Notice he says to all, especially to those of the household of faith. But you know, I think sometimes churches, we become so insular that that's the only people we're doing good for. And it's almost the only reason we're gathered together, in which case almost you know, we, we could be anywhere. We could just be on Zoom and we don't need a building or anything like that. But that's not what we're called to do or to be. 
We're called to be a light. We're called to be salt. And this, this is so much a part of who we're to be. And it bears witness as we preach the kingdom of God. They're not to be separated, right? And we're reminded here again, we must preach. That, that is paramount. And, and so we, when we're gathered together uh, as a congregation, that is, we are there to be worshiping God through the prayer and in praise and in the proclamation of the word. That, that's on target. That, that shouldn't bend because of the people around us. And so I'm not suggesting that needs to, to, to change. But we also are called to do good works. And they can't, they should not be, and really cannot be separated. Right? There's a lot of mission, there's a trend in mission work nowadays, especially short-term missions. People go off to build houses, wells, all hospitals even. And, and, and there's nothing wrong per se in all of those things. People do need those, but as helpful as those things are, in themselves, that is incomplete mission work. That is not, and in fact, I would suggest to you it's not really New Testament mission work if that's all we have done. It must be accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must point people to God. It must bring glory to Him. And they need to be connected. They must not be separated. And as surely as these men are sent out and they're empowered by Jesus for the work, we too have to be empowered and receive our power from God, right? I, we, this is too big a task uh, to be done apart from Him. And, and we're reminded, apart from Christ, we can't do anything. He has to equip us. He has to send us. And He has to bear testimony uh, in our life. Um, in ourselves, we're, we're not up to it. I get that. But it is what he's called us to. And, and we're reminded in the epistles that the Spirit gives gifts as he chooses. Uh, it's by his disposition. You might recall 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. There's diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There's diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Right there, I'm very pleased to hear that not all of us are equipped or made the same. Right, So not all of us are going to be out doing the same good works. We're not all going to be necessarily preaching in the same way. Yours is going to maybe a very quiet one-on-one -on -one kind of thing where you're, you're, you're uh, kind of just probing, piercing hearts a little bit. Uh, it's not going to be a deep... Uh, doctrinal dive in with somebody. Uh, other people, that's going to be their gifting. Uh, there's other people that are good at, at, at building stuff and then and drawing others in. That's okay. There's differences of ministries. There's diversities of gifts. There's diversities of activities. It would be a weird church if we all did exactly the same thing. That's not what God's done in building His church. But it's the same God who works all in all. He's the one at work in it all. And the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Right. So as God empowers us by His Spirit as He chooses, 
It isn't for our self-glorification, but it is to edify the body and to do the work of the kingdom. For one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to other another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy. Again, we are reading something that's written during the apostolic era, so we would in context we would parse out some of those as applying to us more than others. That's okay. Um, we're not going to do all of that tonight. Just a reminder here that on different tongues, another interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. This is the reality. This is God has to equip us, and he does so according to his choosing. Again, 1 Corinthians 12 is not some exhaustive list of categories. Uh, neither is uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, I believe, when he talks about uh, he himself gave some to be apostles, some uh, all of these others. We're not going to read that, but you could read Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. Again, not an exhaustive list, but a reminder that that power still comes to us from God, still comes to us through his Holy Spirit, because he's equipping, he's sending, and, and he is going to testify through us by his word. And we're reminded, Jesus says, this is how it's going to be on the night of his betrayal. There, John chapter 15, if you want to turn over there briefly, uh, at verse 1 and following through verse 8, he says this very plainly. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears more fruit, bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, I'm not going to do a thorough exposition of John uh, 15 that we just read right now. That, that wasn't my point. But I do want to be firmly aware of some key points that Jesus makes here. Uh, one, he's the true vine. Two, his father is the vine dresser. Right? So be ever, before we ever get to you and me, right? we've got God the Father and, and, and God the Son are at the heart of initiating and preparing everything that, that's going on in our life in Christ, right? Uh, the character and the life that we have all come from above, right? Because if we're a branch attached to the vine, then that means the life that we have, that, that's the life of the vine, right? The, 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 the branch shares the character and the DNA, if you will, of the vine, and, and, and everything that, that, that happens on the branch 
is fed and derived from the vine. And of course, the vine is there in, in Jesus' analogy that he uses in the soil and the preparation that the Father has done, that the Father is at work in cultivating uh, all of this work. Uh, and, and so we're just branches. And as he points out, without him, without being connected to him, we can do nothing. And we can certainly not bear fruit on our own, but notice that bearing fruit is what brings glory to God. So the good works we're going to do to bring glory to God, they have to be done in connection with Jesus. They have to be done in connection with our calling and the directing and the sending that we have from God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And uh, apart from him, we can't do anything. We can't do this. And so we have to make sure we are connected and that we are, we are being nourished and, and all that comes uh, with that. And again, I, I didn't intend to do a big exposition of, uh, of John 15 right here, uh, but it is worth your, your study and um, a reminder. Yeah, Paul recognizes this when he writes to the church at Corinth, doesn't he? Because he describes uh, his whole part in evangelism and in taking the word uh, the way in agricultural terms. He, he describes himself as one who plants seed and others are waterers, but it's God who actually is doing the work. God is the one giving increase. He says, uh, who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters. We'll talk about that more on Sunday. But it's God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But there's a reward to be had. There's work to be done, and we're working together. Right? We shouldn't be at cross purposes with each other. Where there's, and we shouldn't be jockeying for position or, or or anything like that. Remember, our good works are to be done for God's glory. And if you can't do good good works for that, then you need to be doing them in a closet. Remember, All right? Jesus says, "Don't be doing your works to be seen of men." You're saying, well, I thought he just said that they may see our good works and give glory to God. Yeah, you, you and I, and, and this is the, the, the marvel of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus does all that he does, and people are always glorifying God. He does it in that way, that humble way. I can't imagine, it's hard for me to really, I, 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 I read and think on our Lord's life, and I'm just always overwhelmed by the, the greatness of it, the the, the perfection of it and, and how other it is than, than my life. Because you think about how he does all things perfectly and well, that, that he does things that are so public, that are so uh, overwhelming to people, and yet he does them in a way that brings glory to his Father, that, that points people to God. You and I, 
we always have these mixed motives, don't we? Uh, even on our best day, I think, we probably we're just uh, have the mixed motives. We, we want God to be glorified, but I, I'd sure like somebody to have noticed that it was me uh, that was part of all of that. I was doing it, right? You, you, saw, you saw what I did? You, did you hear what I said? That was, that was pretty good, right? I mean, I, you know, I, how often does a person come up with a thought that that's, that's, that's uh, that cogent? Uh, well, not too often with me, that's for sure. Um, no, but that's, that's our struggle, isn't it? And that's what Jesus, that's the difference between what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, your good works, if, they're, if you're about glorifying yourself, you're, you're on the wrong boat. That, that needs to be, you need to be not knowing what the other hand is doing. But ultimately, we want to be able to do our good works, our, let our light so shine so that, that God is glorified, that people are pointed to him and they recognize, wow, these, these humble people that are just doing what they do apparently because they know Jesus, right? I remember when, 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 when Peter and John are, have been arrested and, and all they've been doing is, is doing good works and preaching, right? They've done a miracle. Uh, but as Peter had pointed out when he preached right away, he's like, it's not for me. I'm just a person like the rest of you. And, and one of the things when they've been um, examined on multiple times, it, it says in the scripture that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Right? They, they couldn't. There's no other way to figure it out, right? They're just, you know, they they weren't they weren't learned men. They weren't any. They just weren't special in themselves. They just there's something about them though that point people just look and it's like. Yeah, can tell you've been with Jesus. Now, is that going to make everybody happy? Might some people be irate or, or excited that a church closes that was doing their job? Sure they will, because the Bible tells us that, that they hate the Lord. And, and if that's the reason they, they're excited, that's sad, but it's okay. Right? Because that's, just, that's the spiritual warfare that, that goes on. All right, well, we can do nothing without him. And I think, this is me, um, I think this is probably the main reason that Jesus gives the directive for them to take nothing for the journey, right? You might ask yourself, wow, maybe he doesn't let them take anything for the trip. <laughs> He's sending them out there. I think, one, it's to remind them this is probably going to be, this is a relatively short missionary trip for you guys. But two, I think the strict instructions about not taking anything, and again, we could agree to disagree. I, this is not... This is not dogmatic here. Um, but I think it is to help them to focus upon God as their provider. That he, that they need to be reliant upon him and, and him ultimately for all things if they're going to go out into the field. And, and it's going to be a demonstration that they're going to be able to, that, that God is going to take care of them. That he is going to provide for them. Because, you know, there's coming a time when Jesus is going to return to heaven and they're going to be on their own in an earthly sense, in the sense that Jesus isn't physically with them anymore, but praise be to God, they're not actually going to be all alone. <laughs> they're never all alone any more than you and I are all alone. God is with them. Um, I, I want us to I want to remind you to use a little caution here, uh, just in terms of hermeneutics, right? And uh, one of our... 
the instructions Jesus gives here are not to be a pattern for all mission work. Right? In fact, Jesus gives different directions later uh, when they're going to go out uh, on different occasions. And we need to always remember the difference between when we're reading uh, uh, any kind of historical narrative, the difference between something that's descriptive and something that's prescriptive. Right? Descriptive means it's just describing what happens. Now, Luke is describing what happens. Prescriptive means it's a directive for our life. Now, what's interesting in this case is Luke is describing an event where Jesus is giving prescriptive directions, but he's giving prescriptive directions to the twelve for a specific task. And many a person has gone astray by suddenly lifting uh, a prescription for a specific time and place and people and making that prescriptive across the board. We need to be careful about that, right? There is a key for us to note uh, uh, that is for us. um, One, it's descriptive, right, in terms of the specifics, yet in terms of the theological principle of being dependent upon God that we just talked about uh, and our connection to Christ, that's an enduring prescription for all Christians at all times. So uh, there is there is a takeaway for us. There is something to be gleaned, but it is not a prescription for all mission work from the time of Jesus there until the present, until he returns. He does not tell the all missionaries that they have to leave home was zip, and to do it this way. In fact, we we see different ways unfold. So just be cautious about that. I, I know sometimes people just they they don't they haven't really learned how to to study scripture well, uh, and it can get people into some trouble sometimes. All right, the the last bit there uh, before they depart, he says, "Whoever will not receive you when you go out of that." city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Whew. The perils of rejecting the apostles is a serious serious one, isn't it? Um, Jesus tells them to leave, shake the dust off from their feet as a testimony against them. Man, I don't want apostolic testimony against me. right? You want the apostolic testimony coming to you of Jesus so that you might receive the gospel. Uh, but I certainly don't want an apostolic uh, testimony uh, in uh, against us. And that's a chilling statement. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that when the books are open before the judgment seat of God, it will not only describe all of our sins that we've committed against God, but I believe it's also going to be, there is going to be the testimony against us of how we continually rejected God's witness to us. But there's a lot of people you, you talk about, and there's even people that are confused in the church that, you know, talk about, you know, whoever they are. You know, they, they're always the, the nameless people out there that they didn't know, they haven't heard, this or that, and it wouldn't be fair for God to punish them. All right, well, that's just absolutely unbiblical, right? Uh, they will be punished. Um, if you are not in Christ Jesus on the day of judgment, you will 
go to hell. That's, that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And the reality is God has witnessed to us. And in, that in those books, I believe, will be not only the, the overt the sins that we committed against God, but will be just list after list of the testimony that God sent to us that we rejected. Right? First off, his witness in the very creation. But that, that's available to all of humanity. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 in particular, describe this. It's not the only place. Now, it's true that you could say, well, that creation's testimony doesn't reveal salvation through faith in Christ. I agree with you there. It does not. But here is the problem. This is the damnable testimony against us is that while receiving the witness of creation that there is a God, we do not seek to find Him and to worship Him. Right? And Paul, Paul addresses that in chapter 1. So he says after you... He says, after you, you've rejected it, you're without excuse. But what did you do? Knowing that there's a God, what do we do? We don't seek Him out and try to find out how I can get right with Him. We instead turn and worship other things. Right? There aren't those quote-unquote innocent people off on some island somewhere that that are just, it's not fair that they're going to hell because they hadn't heard the, uh, the gospel. You know what? God has borne witness and their response to that witness brings its own condemnation. Number two, he has witnessed in our conscience. Again, Romans chapter 2 and James 4.17 reminding us that it is a, a sin to actually violate, to, to know what is right and to not to do it. And again, I get that our conscience doesn't give a gospel re revelation, but it is enough to produce guilt. And our response to that guilt, again, brings testimony against us because we don't seek help from the only one that can help us. Folks, our fallen nature is so bad that we don't even recognize it until if the scripture just outlined and points to how just how dull of hearing and how hardened of heart we really are. God is just in what he does. And of course, number three is indeed the gospel witness. And in many ways, it is uh, the first two witnesses that make this one so egregious because when we know that there's a God, when we know that we've sinned against Him, that we're guilty by our conscience, how egregious is it then that we would reject His offer of salvation? That's the ultimate witness against us. Uh, that's why I was saying, I quoted that uh, more, a little more modern uh, worship song uh, Sunday morning is there any way you could say no to this man you think about what Jesus did what God did in sending his son and we reject him out of hand in many cases 
folks, that demonstrate it doesn't you, you you may say you know what I'm basically a good person I don't even need to argue about you know what I I know the Bible gives a great argument against that it doesn't matter the fact that anybody would reject God's offer demonstrates a depravity and darkness of heart that is beyond comprehension and is more than deserving of an eternity apart from God. The declaration of God's word is always a two-edged sword, isn't it? He's sending them out there to present the good news of the kingdom of God. But there's going to be some people that have the dust of the shoes as a witness against them. It was a two-edged sword during the time of the prophets, and it is a two-edged sword to this present day. Because to those who reject it is an outward, visible testimony of what's in their heart. God already sees it. God already knows. He doesn't need this witness to tell him what your heart is like. But it becomes an outward testimony against us. As surely as God did not have to actually go and send angels to Sodom to know how wicked they were... Uh, but you can read Genesis 18, uh, 21, and Genesis 19. He does so. It becomes a testimony against them. It becomes a very visible contact. It becomes a, an actual event which highlights the wickedness of the cities. Had they repented when those angels came, it would have been the blessed testimony of the good news, wouldn't it? Just as when Jonah went to Nineveh, 40 days and you shall be destroyed, and yet they responded in sackcloth and ashes, and it became a day of, re, uh, of repentance, and it became a, a day of salvation. It is a testimony one way or another. It becomes a visible testimony of what is in our heart uh, if we reject Him. It becomes that outward witness against us that will be uh, in the books that are opened. But to those who hear and repent, it is God's instrument in drawing people to salvation. And how glorious is that good news? Well, he sends them out. He gives them instructions and he empowers them. And uh, we'll pick up there at uh, verse 7. Lord willing, next week when we meet in person.